0: Thank you, Michael. Thank you for leading us to the throne of grace. Thank you for your prayers. And thank you for the depth of your heart. Um, May we all uh, find ourselves deeply, deeply moved by the things that rightly we should be moved by. A love and compassion for others and the suffering that they're going through. But the suffering of people in in this life, uh, the suffering of people since the fall of our first parents, has been the context in which the good news has come, uh, the good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we turn now to our message concerning the resurrection, which is titled Brought Back from the Dead. We're going to be looking at Hebrews 13:20 20 to 21. And to note, as we look at this passage, this is a benediction. This is the climactic benediction in the book of Hebrews, And it's a very powerful statement of the Christian faith. Now be the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Again, we come to you, Father, asking for your Holy Spirit, the Spirit's presence within us, knowing that the natural man cannot perceive the things of the Spirit for they're spiritually discerned. And so, therefore, we need the working of your Holy Spirit within our minds, within our hearts, within our lives in every way that we might clearly understand your truth and take your truth into our lives to be fed on it, changed by it and motivated motivated in and through it uh, to do all that is pleasing to you we know that we have not just life in this world as christians but we have a mission and commission in this world as christians you've called us to be salt you've called us to be light you've called us to love our neighbors as ourselves Uh, you've called us to be those who bear The redemptive message of Jesus to this world. So, Lord, uh, do your great work in us so that we may serve you faithfully. For the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Around the year 1926, a Mr. James Allen Francis, a Baptist preacher, uh, penned these famous words about Jesus. Here is a man who was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another obscure village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. And then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never owned a home. He never had a family. He never went to college. He never put his foot inside a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accomplishes, usually accompanies greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He had nothing to do with this world except the naked power of his divine manhood. While still a young man, the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. His executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had on earth while he was dying, and that was his coat. When he was dead, he was taken away and laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Nineteen wide centuries have come and gone And today, he is the centerpiece of the human race and the leader of a column of progress. I am far within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched and all the navies that ever were built and all the parliaments that ever sat and all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as has that one solitary life. Now, many have read these words and uh, have praised them as a very fine tribute to Christ. But honestly, these words sound more like a eulogy than a tribute because it ends with his death. So the obvious question is this. If that one solitary life actually ended on Good Friday, would it could it have become the most influential life in all of history? That is to say, if Easter morning had not followed Good Friday, if the resurrection had not followed the crucifixion, would we even know of the name of Jesus? Would there ever have been this most influential, so-called one solitary life? No. It is a certainty It is a certainty that without the resurrection of Christ, there would have been no Christianity at all. Now, here's why. Based on the actual course of history, Christianity began as a very small movement within a pagan Roman empire. That empire was hostile to its beliefs and practices. The great surprise, historically speaking, is that this small movement became the dominant an official religion of the Roman Empire within 300 years. But the historical record shows that it wasn't the teachings of Jesus that caused this to happen. That is to say, it's not to be credited to the Sermon on the Mount that Christianity became the dominant religion, nor even to his teachings about the fatherhood of God, nor even to that absolutely new idea that the very essence of God was, in fact, the essence of love. It wasn't any of the teachings of Christ that empowered the Christian movement to spiritually conquer the pagan Roman Empire within three centuries. Rather, it was the message of the resurrection. It was the passionate preaching of the resurrection of Jesus by the followers of Jesus that God raised him from the dead that, in fact, conquered a pagan empire. Christianity began with the resurrection of Christ. And this is the point of departure assumed everywhere within the New Testament writings. So, in this benediction that we've looked at, it's embedded here. It is the central claim of our faith. God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, this benediction is just simply one of several passages in the New Testament where you can read in in one grand statement or two, uh, almost a, a, a grand synopsis of the entire Christian faith. So, if you spoke about God as the God of peace, if you spoke about Jesus as Lord and the Great Shepherd, if you spoke about the followers of Jesus as His sheep, if you spoke about the death of Christ and His blood as the blood of the eternal covenant, if you spoke about the resurrection of Christ. And about god at work within the sheep equipping them to do his will in and through christ if you taught that this was for the sake of the glory of christ even his eternal glory then you would have pretty much described what christianity and its teachings are all about you would have pretty much summed up the great truths of the gospel and all of these things are mentioned in this benediction but here's the crucial thing to note In this summary of the whole Christian message, the central hinge is the resurrection. God bringing Jesus back from the dead. Or to put it this way, which is the main focus of our message this morning, that when we explain the resurrection of Jesus, we will also unfold and explain the good news of the Christian faith. The resurrection of Jesus is the central hinge to the meaning and the message of God's good news to a fallen and broken humanity. So that's the task for this morning. It's the appropriate task for Easter to unfold the meaning of the resurrection. Now, here's the path that we're going to follow to do this. I want us to think about the resurrection in terms of three tenses, uh, the past the present and the future. Each tense has something significant to say about the resurrection and about the gospel. For example, with respect to the past, that is in in reference to past history, uh, the resurrection is a necessary truth. It's the necessary truth. With respect to the present, that is with respect to our own personal salvation, we have to conclude that the resurrection is the indispensable truth. And then with respect to the future, with respect to the life to come, the resurrection is the defining truth. Now, when we look at the resurrection this way, from these three perspectives, we will, in fact, be explaining the essential message of the Christian faith, the good news that God and Christ has come into this world in order to redeem those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus. But first of all, the past tense, Uh, this matter of history, the resurrection is the necessary truth, especially with respect to the history of the Christian faith. Now, the writer of Hebrews who writes to first century Christian Jews, Christian Hebrews, um, in his writing, he makes this historical claim that is everywhere central to the gospel message. That is, God has raised Jesus from the dead. But then he also connects this to how Jesus has conquered the devil, how Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, how he has, uh, by the resurrection, now the power of an indestructible and resurrected life. And with that power, he is able to save to the uttermost those who will draw near to God through him. And the writer makes it clear that because of the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus always lives. To make intercession for his people. In other words, Jesus is all of this because God has brought back from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. This claim is the indispensable truth with respect to the history of the Christian faith. It is the necessary truth to the history of the Christian faith. But we can say that the entire weight of the trustworthiness, the truthfulness, the veracity of the claims made about God and man and salvation rest on whether this claim is historically true. Unless God raised Christ from the dead, there is no Christian faith. Yet, at the same time, and for well over the past 100 years, there have been deniers of the resurrection from within the pale of Christianity. There's a whole host of men and women with advanced degrees who would call themselves Christian scholars who doubt or outright disbelieve the bodily resurrection of Christ as a fact of history. Let me just give you a couple of fairly current and recent examples. First, from England. From within the Church of England, there is this bishop, the Reverend uh, Dr. John S. Spong, uh, in one of the books that he's written, this one's entitled Resurrection, Myth or Reality. He boldly asserts this claim. Quoting him. A deceased man did not walk out of his grave physically alive three days after his execution by crucifixion. Uh, Spong is dogmatically certain Christ did not rise from the dead. Or take an American example, American scholar, uh, Dr. Marcus Borg. He died in 2015. He was a member of the so called Uh, Jesus seminar, that very skeptical Jesus seminar, you almost could describe it this way. The we don't think Jesus is who the New Testament claims he is seminar. That's the kind of so-called Christian scholarship involved in the seminar. And so Dr. Bork likewise denied the resurrection. He said the denial of the resurrection, the fact that it didn't really exist, doesn't really matter to Christianity Now, this kind of denial about the resurrection goes back even before the turn of the 20th century. It first began among European scholars and then American scholars followed. They began to say things like this. Although it's clear that the first disciples truly believed that Jesus rose bodily from the grave, no serious modern historian can believe such things as this. And then such scholars would continue to insist that Christianity is a valid faith. Uh, it can still connect you to God, even if the resurrection is simply untrue. But that's exactly opposite to what the New Testament claims about the resurrection. Uh, in the New Testament, the claim is made that without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. There is no salvation at all. But before we look at that claim, I want to mention something about what we read and hear from the so-called New Atheists. What they say about the resurrection makes them better friends to Christianity than what these so-called skeptical scholars claim. The New Atheists recognize, more or less, that if Jesus rose from the dead, then Christianity has something to stand on. It has something to say. But if he didn't, then all of the so-called claims of the Christian faith, all the claims of Christ are bunk. And these claims are incredibly significant. Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, God incarnate. Jesus claimed to be able to forgive sin, to forgive moral guilt. He claimed he was the only way to salvation, that he was the only way to God the Father. He claimed he was going to rise from the dead. He claimed he was going to come again. But as the new atheists have insisted, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then all the so-called claims of Christ are bunk and here all of the new testament agrees especially the apostle paul in 1 corinthians 15:17 the apostle paul has said that if christ has not been raised then our faith is futile and we are still in our sins and that is why we have to say that the resurrection is the necessary truth with respect to history and the history of christianity without easter morning Without the resurrection, that one solitary life would have disappeared into the oblivion of human history. Jesus would never have been noticed. Instead, he would have been one of the nameless thousands of Jews that the Romans crucified. Think about this. We don't know the names of the two thieves who were crucified next to Jesus. Without the resurrection, we wouldn't know the name of Jesus either. That leads us then to consider the present tense with respect to the resurrection with respect to our being saved here and now the resurrection is the indispensable truth early on in the book of hebrews the writer makes the claim that it was the resurrection that enabled jesus jesus to be to be crowned as the great high priest because jesus rose bodily from the dead he ascended bodily to the right hand of god in heaven and there he sits in his bodily form in an indestructible life to make continual intercession for the people of God. And this reflects the rest of the New Testament. The resurrection is the Christian's guarantee that the work of Christ and the shedding of his blood is a fully finished and completed work. Christ did establish and inaugurate the eternal covenant of by virtue of his resurrection from the dead. Now, Paul makes the same claim in different words. In Romans chapter 4, verse 25, he writes that Jesus was, quote, delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now, I want you to hear how uh, the great Presbyterian theologian, uh, Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, explains it, B.B. Warfield. Speaking of Jesus in this way and in this regard, he says, quoting him, that he, meaning Christ, died, that he died, manifest his love and his willingness to save, that he rose again, manifest his power and his ability to save. If we're saved at all, it must be by one who did not merely pass to death in our behalf, but who passed through death. Had he not emerged from the tomb, all of our hopes, all our salvation, Will be lying dead with him unto this day the resurrection of christ is thus the indispensable evidence of his completed work his accomplished redemption in one word the resurrection of christ is fundamental to the christian hope and to the christian confidence all of our assurance of salvation is suspended on this fact so warfield is saying That because Jesus rose from the dead, we know he paid the full penalty. We know his ransom was fully sufficient. We know the work was finished. We know that God has fully accepted the sacrifice of Good Friday. We know that we have been bought with a price. We know that we are his purchased possession forever. This is the good news. We do not have anything to add or anything else to contribute to what Jesus has done for our salvation. Rather, God is now equipping us and working in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, because the God of peace has brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep. And finally, to consider the future tense, with respect to the life to come, The resurrection is the defining truth. Now, once more, let me appeal to B.B. Warfield. Uh, What he says about the resurrection is this. He says, we've not exhausted the scriptural view of the power of his resurrection until we perceive that his resurrection drags ours in its train. In other words, Warfield is saying that the resurrection of Jesus necessarily brings about our Resurrection. And this is the defining truth about the future life of the believer. The bodily resurrection of Christ guarantees the bodily resurrection of the believer. And this bodily resurrection is the essential nature of the afterlife and the life to come. Now, in this matter of the resurrection of the believer, the biblical faith stands in great and utter contrast to the rest of the religious world. All throughout history, virtually every religion has believed in an afterlife, a second world after death. So every sort of polytheism, every sort of pantheism, every sort of paganism, all have believed that when you die physically, your soul or your spirit passes into the spiritual world, into the spiritual realm of existence. Now, the nature of that spiritual realm of existence has been described with a great variety. You know, there's been a great range of ideas and conceptions. So you have the Greek underworld of Stygian and darkness. You have the happy hunting grounds of the Native Americans. But that variety is because the ancient world and the world of paganism today has never had any trustworthy authority to give them the truth about life after death. But here's the one idea consistently absent in all of the pagan world. It is the idea that happens to be the cornerstone of what the Bible has to say about the afterlife, and that is the truth and the reality of the resurrection. You see, the focal point of paganism is that the afterlife, the next realm of existence, is wholly spiritual. Everything that is physical, everything that's made of material matter, completely passes away in this afterlife. Uh, This is the mark of all of the religious faiths that were at war with the people of God. All of them held that the afterlife was wholly a realm of spirit, wholly a departure from the physical world, wholly a departure from any sort of physical existence. That is why paganism has always rejected the idea of a physical and bodily resurrection. Now, against paganism, you have the biblical conception of the life to come. In Scripture, God has revealed that the final state of the afterlife is both spiritual and physical, and this truth is grounded in the doctrine of the resurrection. The uniform witness of the New Testament is that the hope of the gospel is not finalized by dying and going to heaven to take up a spiritual existence where we are going to be like angels, holy spiritual beings forever. No. The resurrection is a refutation of paganism. Especially at this point. You know, it doesn't matter how many Greco Roman philosophers or how central it is to Gnosticism and all of the mystery cults, it doesn't matter how much paganism has hated the physical realm and the physical body as weighing the spirit down as something that's either 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 uh, evil in itself or something that's impediment to being truly spiritual. The gospel makes the physical resurrection from the dead, the defining character of what the afterlife is all about. Jesus himself made it central to his teaching about salvation, that our salvation always points to the physical body and to the bodily resurrection in the life to come. Consider these crucial passages. From John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. In this passage, where Jesus teaches about salvation and the coming judgment, he teaches that everyone will have a bodily resurrection. Everyone will come out of the grave. He says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. In that hour that Jesus speaks of, all people will experience a resurrection from the grave, but with two opposite destinies. A resurrection unto life, life that is eternal, and a resurrection unto judgment. Now in the very next chapter, in chapter 6, verses 37 to 40, and then verse 44, Jesus promises the resurrection of life to those who will believe in Him. He says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, the important thing here, the thing that you can't possibly miss, is how Jesus consistently connects eternal life to the resurrection from the dead. Not to dying and our spirit going on to heaven, but rather the promise of eternal life is that we will be resurrected from the dead to live forever. Now, let me mention a third point to these two points in terms of Jesus' teaching, and it's this. From the Bible's own language and perspective, when you physically die, you are dead When your spirit is absent from the body, but present with the Lord, you are spoken of by the New Testament as dead. Even the Bible is clear that the believer's spirit goes to be with Christ in heaven upon our death. The Bible always speaks of those in heaven as dead. And they are called the dead until they are resurrected. For instance, 1 Corinthians 15 Verse 35, and then 42, and then 52. Verse 35, the Apostle Paul says, But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? So Paul's speaking about those who are dead in Christ, who are absent from the body, but present with the Lord in heaven. Uh, So he's speaking about the dead being raised, those in heaven being raised from the dead. Then verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. Again, the dead are those in heaven with Christ, but those who are in Christ in heaven will experience a bodily resurrection. Verse 52, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. Again, the dead who are raised imperishable at the resurrection are those who are currently dead in Christ, absent from the body, present with Jesus in heaven. Now, Paul speaks the same way in First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, this is the full and final hope of the Christian. Eternal life is body and soul reunited, even as Jesus' own body and soul were reunited when God raised him from the dead. His resurrection is called the first fruits of the final harvest, when all the dead in Christ shall rise thereafter to be with the Lord always. This truth is so embodied in the history of the Christian faith uh, that we it has shown up for for centuries in our funeral rites, uh, so it is practice across all spectrums of of Christianity that when the body is lowered into the grave, the graveside service will have words to this effect: uh, dust to dust, ashes to ashes, in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection from the dead through Jesus Christ our Lord. Even Ben Franklin uh, in the 18th century, who was not a biblical Christian, but a Christian deist believed that his afterlife hope was in a bodily resurrection from the dead. When he was a young man, he wrote his own epitaph. He writes the body of B. Franklin printer, like the cover of an old book, its contents torn out and stripped of its lettering and gilding lies here. Food for worms. But the work shall not be wholly lost, for it will, as he has believed, appear once more in a new and more perfect edition, corrected and amended by the author. Now it's sad that without a personal faith in Jesus, Benjamin Franklin will not be resurrected unto eternal life, but to eternal judgment, as Jesus taught. Nevertheless, Franklin's words tell us this much. In his day, in his age, all Christians knew that the resurrection was the distinctive teaching of the Christian faith over and against all the pagan ideas of the afterlife. As Warfield has put it, the resurrection of Jesus drags our resurrection along with it. So what we have said this morning declares the truth about Easter. The resurrection of Jesus is central to the Christian faith and to the good news of salvation. It's the necessary truth of history, Christian history. It's the uh, indispensable truth of our salvation, and it is the defining truth of the life to come. During the reign of Napoleon Bonaparte, uh, the originator of a new religion came to Napoleon's great diplomat and statement, Charles Talleyrand, Uh, this new religion originator complained he couldn't make any converts, so he came for advice. He asked, what do you suggest I do? Talleyrand replied in this way, I should recommend that you get yourself crucified and then die, but be sure to rise again the third day. Which is to say, it was the resurrection of Jesus that made the Christian faith believable and compelling. But without the resurrection of Jesus, the death of Christ would have been the end of it all. No converts, no new religion, no one solitary life to influence the course of human history. But the truth is this. The resurrection of Jesus is the necessary truth of history. It is the indispensable truth of our salvation. It is the defining truth with respect to the life of the life to come. Therefore we say, He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Let's pray. Our God and Father, thank you for the resurrection of your son, the Lord Jesus from the dead. Thank you that no matter our current circumstances, uh, we say with joy, he is risen, he is risen indeed, amen.